Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, the Lower Mainland bus system shuts down, inconveniencing thousands of Vancouverites, while the latest on whether it will spread to SkyTrain. Plus, as the transit strike continues, ride-hailing users get hit with surge pricing. What gives? Plus, about time, the federal government announces a two-year cap on international students with public and private colleges' entire business model based on charging huge fees. What happens to our post-secondary education system? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. It was community uh, commuting hell for bus riders this morning in Metro Vancouver. Local QP of 4500, the union representing bus supervisors, moved forward with their strike action at 3 a.m., effectively shutting down all services to buses and C-bus operations across the region. It's important to note that SkyTrain, which includes, of course, Canada, Expo and Millennium Lines, as well as the West Coast Express, were unaffected. Strike action is expected to continue for a couple of days, minimum expiring at 3 a.m. on Wednesday. A lot of folks of course were inconvenienced take a listen to some of those commuters from this morning i heard about it i planned ahead not like other people don't took me probably probably like 40 minutes later than i usually have to do get to work do you support uh, the bus strike going on right now yes and no because it kind of like destroys people's work ethic but they got to do what they got to do to survive too right you can really do about it. it's the union you deal with right two days okay but not more than that not more than that yeah you can't just do uber and spending our money on that because we are not earning that much. Now, of course, uh, this action comes after uh, QP Local 4500 and the employer Coast Mountain uh, Bus Company failed to reach an agreement. The union is asking for wages, which are similar to SkyTrain field supervisors. Coast Mountain argues that its transit supervisors aren't responsible for directly managing employees. Uh, Liam O'Neill, who's a representative for uh, QP Local 4500, spoke uh, to press about an hour ago. Take a listen to his comments. QP 4500 has worked very hard at trying to achieve a deal with Coast Mountain at the table. We've provided compromise and solutions and, um, and in an effort to avoid these service disruptions. We're not interested in bargaining in the media um, and yet Coast Mountain bus um, are more seem more interested in assigning blame and to smearing our members than to getting a deal. That was Liam O'Neill, a representative from QP Local 4500, speaking about an hour ago. Now, this dispute is between Coast Mountain Bus Company and QP Local 4500. TransLink, however, uh, has also commented. Their CEO, Kevin Quinn, reminded everybody that there's 300,000 Metro Vancouver residents rely on uh, bus and C-bus every single day to get to work, to school, uh, to daycare. Uh, Here is comments from earlier today. Look, uh, this dispute is between CNBC and QP Local 4500, but TransLink oversees customer impacts and the financial health of the organization. A 13.5% wage increase over three years was accepted by all other CNBC unions, BCRTC unions, and other public sector unions across the province. And I understand that CNBC even improved on its original offer and addressed the union's demands regarding workload issues. CNBC has advised us that the union still wants significantly more than any other union has settled for. But I've got to say now is not the time. 
That was Kevin Quinn, CEO of TransLink, uh, speaking earlier today. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I think you have to provide a bit of room when it comes to negotiations between uh, these two parties. It is the nature of uh, negotiations. It's the nature of uh, labor disputes. And in my early days as a reporter, I've been a part of a union. Uh, And these things do need time. But a union that is representing um, uh, those in the Coast Coast Mountain Bus uh, in this particular case, there's a difference. And that difference, of course, is that you are moving people. 300,000 people rely on this service, as Kevin Quinn says. Uh, and I do not believe we can allow this to continue for another 24 hours, never mind longer than that. Uh, transit is very unique. It moves us to our work, uh, to our daycare centers, to our schools, for medical appointments. This region is going to hit 3 million people uh, by July 1st. Uh, that alone should tell you that not everybody is going to own a car, that not everybody can afford to own a car, not everybody can afford to park a car. And increasingly, as we invite more people to this city, TransLink and Transit generally is what they're going to rely on. And it should be made an essential service. I understand the need to negotiate a fair wage. I absolutely do. And I respect what these bus drivers do. It's not an easy job either, folks, especially in our, on our busy roads, not to mention dealing with traffic, but dealing with at times uh, unruly customers uh, and violence that sometimes is extended towards not only bus drivers, supervisors, all of that. That I understand. But at the end of the day, for a region this size, for a region that continues to grow by 100, 200,000 people per year, this is integral to the movement of goods and services of people in this region, period, full stop. And if we cannot, if we cannot take care of those individuals that are relying on that transit system every single day to get them to work, and we turn them down in this manner, well, this doesn't serve the region well. It tells people you can't rely on this transit system, and that's fundamentally wrong. The bus service is integral to it. Yes, we talk about uh, SkyTrain and all of those uh, lines that we have. Yes, they move people. The, bu- bu- the bus system itself is the backbone of the system. They're the ones that actually move even more people and get you to your neighborhood. And I think somewhere along the way, the labor minister and the provincial government has failed here. They should have been tougher from day one on getting a deal done. It's not like Coast Mountain Bus Company is being intransigent here. I think it's a fair deal. Whether or not you want to quibble with it as a union, fine, so be it. But get it done. This type of inconvenience is not acceptable for the public whatsoever. It is impacting everyday working people. 300,000 Metro Vancouver residents rely on the bus system. And if they cannot get to work, if they cannot get to school, if they cannot meet their medical appointments, they cannot get their kids to daycare, there is something fundamentally wrong. Call me on the open line. Should the provincial government have made this, the bus service, an essential service, or at the very least use pressure to make sure that we did not get to this point? New visas for international students will be slashed by more than one-third this year as the federal government tries to slow a rapid increase in temporary residence that has put immense pressure on Canada's housing system. Immigration Minister Mark Miller announced a temporary cap on new student visas 
at a three-day cabinet retreat in Montreal. Uh, Miller did say the cap on new student visas will be implemented for this year and next. The numbers of new visas handed out this year will be capped at 364,000. But uh, more than 900,000 foreign students had visas to study in Canada last year alone. To put that in context for you, this year alone, the immigration system is still allowing 485,000 immigrants to come to this country. The 900,000 number that I'm mentioning is on top of that. And that has been the challenge in regards to the amount of temporary foreign workers that have come to this uh, country. Uh, And it is one segment that we've covered, uh, an issue that we have covered significantly on this show. Tremendous amount of feedback from the public and our listeners as well. Uh, Here's another gentleman joining us now who has talked about this issue and many others. He's out here uh, in British Columbia for a couple of days. Pierre Polyev is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and he joins us now. Mr. Polyev, thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you, Mr. Joe Hall. Let's touch on the issue of immigration and, and international uh, students specifically. Uh, if there was a Pierre Polyev government, based on today's announcement, what would you do differently, or would you do anything differently in regards to what the federal Liberals have been doing? I'd do everything differently. We wouldn't be in this mess if I were Prime Minister. <clears throat> Look, and by the way, you don't have to take my word that we're in a mess. Listen to the Liberals' own rhetoric. The current minister says the system is out of control. He says that it has allowed tens of thousands of students to get federal student visas to study at what he calls puppy mills that offer fake certificates to bring in people who are ultimately going to be workers that are then often exploited, paid below minimum wage, forced 16 into a basement suite or living under bridges and on streets. Uh, And uh, according to the Liberals, causing major housing pressures. But the question is, who was in charge that allowed all of this to happen? Who was in charge that allowed the population to go almost three times as fast as the housing stock? The answer is Justin Trudeau was in charge. We never had this chaos in our immigration system beforehand. We had 150 years of nearly perfect consensus across all parties and all regions in favor of immigration, some of the highest... Uh, sustained levels of immigration successfully in this country than any country in the world. And until Justin Trudeau came along and through total incompetence caused this mess, my common sense plan is to bring in a system that ensures that everyone who comes here as an international student is studying at a real university or college that is certified to deliver a real certificate and a real education, that they have housing and that they must have enough money in the bank and and or a job to pay the bills so that they don't end up in a gang or trafficked uh, into danger. Uh, th- that is common sense, and that is what I will bring home. Uh, one of the things uh, that we've been talking about on this show is that our system itself, the public system and the private system, have become so reliant on the international student. And this is has happened under the federal liberals, but this has been going on for 25, 30 years, which is that particularly at the provincial level, we've become so reliant in regards to international students subsidizing the provincial program or provincial education system that even a cut of 35% across the country, 50% in Ontario, probably very close to 50% here in British Columbia, will have a significant impact on the viability of some programs just because the dollars haven't been there. How would you fix that problem? Because I agree with you in regards to the diploma mills. I think most Canadians, reasonable Canadians, would agree with you. This has gone way too way too long. But the problem is the system is addicted to the international student dollar. How do you fix that problem? Because cutting is one thing, but the next thing is they're all going to come to the, the government saying we need more money. These schools will be saying that. How do we fix that? Well, where's the money going I don't understand how it is that tuition has gone up, 
federal funding to post-secondary has gone way up. Provincial funding has gone way up. And the number of international students paying exorbitant fees has gone up by hundreds of percent. It looks to me like all the money is being vaporized by an ever-growing bureaucracy. So these institutions should focus on frontline teaching and services to students rather than back office bureaucracies. Uh, that's how we get the system under control. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand you're going to be heading up to the northwest of our province, uh, the Terrace Kitimat area. Uh, why do you want to head up there? Because the great people up there deserve stronger representation. After eight years of Trudeau, they, uh, everything costs more. Housing costs have doubled. We have a, cr- a drug crisis. Uh, numerous resource projects are blocked, depriving First Nations of employment opportunities. And the local Liberal a local NDP MP has sold out the constituents there to sign on to a coalition that keeps Trudeau in power. I will be there with a common sense message to axe the tax, fix the budget, stop the crime, and build the homes. That will be my message up north, and I think it will get a, a good feedback from the common sense people there. Um, Mr. Polyev, you've talked about uh, natural resource projects, and I used to work for the LNG industry. There's a big project of their LNG Canada, the largest private sector investment in the history of this country being built, very close to being done. You have the coastal gas pipeline, you have the TMX pipeline that's also being built. Uh, there is obviously a significant need for our resources here in this province and across uh, the world. Uh, at the same time, we have to, be in the, have to be focused on an energy transition as well. I know how you feel about the carbon tax. I know how you feel about that region and how you feel about the building uh, and making sure we support our natural gas uh, and natural and those involved in natural resources. But can you explain to me what your energy transition program would look like moving forward as well? Because we still do have to move to a, a cleaner, greener future, whatever that may look like, but we still have to do so. What would you do to, to make that transition? Technology and not taxes. I would green light green projects like small modular nuclear reactors to supply emissions-free baseload electricity uh, that will replace dirty coal fire uh, onto grids in places like Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. I would green light to hydroelectric dams and the export of civilian-grade Canadian uranium for nuclear power around the world. I would green light more natural gas projects. You mentioned LNG. Canada, that was approved under the previous Harper government. Trudeau has not brought a single LNG project to fruition out of the 18 that were proposed when he took office. While the Americans have completed seven, the Qataris have doubled their production. The Germans built an import terminal from concept to completion in 194 days. But here in Canada, we can't get anything built because Trudeau's built a a bureaucracy to block approvals. So I will repeal C-69 to rapidly approve projects that will replace dirty, high-emitting energy with low-emitting Canadian natural gas, hydroelectricity, uh, and Canadian um, uh, nuclear. Uh, that is, that's the way we do it, not by making traditional energy more expensive, but by making low-emitting alternatives more affordable. Keep in mind, Trudeau and the NDP want to quadruple the carbon tax to 61 cents a litre. I worry about seniors having to skip meals uh, in order to pay that enormous tax hike. Only the common sense conservatives will act the tax so you pay less and bring home more. 
Uh, Mr. Polyev, always good to chat. Look forward to having you in studio one of these days. I know you've got a very busy schedule, but would love to chat with you in, in the studio one of these days yes, as well. Thank- I know. We've been talking about that for too long. We're going to have to make that happen. <laughs> we will, and I know we will. There you go. Thank you so much for your time, and enjoy your uh, travels up in Terrace and Kitimat. Many blessings to you, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Bye, Mr. Johal. Well, new visas for international students will be slashed by more than a third this year as the federal government tries to slow a rapid increase in temporary residence that has put immense pressure on Canada's housing system. Uh, Immigration Minister Mark Miller said the cap on new students, student visas will be implemented for this year and next. The number of new visas handed out this year will be capped at 364,000, a 35% decrease from the nearly 560,000 issued last year. Uh, to put that in context, more than 900,000 foreign students had visas to study in Canada last year. Alone. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this U-turn by the federal Liberal government and their policy is Dr. Dale McCartney. He's a professor at the University of the Fraser Valley who studies international student policy. Dr. McCartney, thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. Thank you. Uh, what is your take on this recent announcement? I mean, it's a big uh, intervention in the international student system. I think that uh, my immediate take is that... Uh, the cut is really high, uh, higher, I think, than we were expecting uh, when we chatted last week. Um, and that the way it's being distributed, where they're assigning the number of international student permits to provinces based on the province's population, means that it's going to have a really big effect on BC and Ontario particularly. Uh, I think in the case of uh, Ontario, they've already said 50%. Do you see something close yeah. to that for British Columbia as well? Yeah, I mean, I have to, I have to do. I'm really bad at math, but I have to do the math. But I think, like, you know, ballpark probably in that range. Yes, because BC takes many more, like a disproportionate number of international students come to BC for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, when I hear what you've just said and what the minister has said, I'm thinking, uh, let's just talk about our public colleges for for a second. Forget our universities, but sure. public colleges. There's one or two of them that are heavily reliant on yeah. international students. That's a lot of money these students bring in. What does it mean yeah. to the bottom line or even the, the viability of some of these colleges that are so yeah. heavily reliant on international student dollars? Yeah, I would say it's more than one or two, by the way. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think this is a huge question. And something I really like, or I've liked is a strong word, but something I appreciate about the announcement is that Minister Miller is clearly yeah. asking provinces to distribute the international students themselves and distribute the permits. And I think that's smart, rather than having the federal government distribute them. So in a way, we don't know for sure how it's going to affect those colleges yet, because we need to see what the provincial government decides about how they're going to be distributed. I mean, it's a really big cut, and it feels like um, it's hard to imagine a system that is able to still supply the number of international students that those colleges are are, um, welcoming right now. You know, we in the context of this cut, which means, as you're saying, it's going to mean budget cuts, it's going to mean, um, uh, you know, deficits or, or, or layoffs or closing programs. And one of the, the challenges here is that we've spent the last two decades telling colleges and universities to be flexible and to find other sources of funding. And this has been a really key one. And to now close it, there are very few avenues they're left to go to. You know, they're relying on public support and on international student fees, and particularly in a context where they don't want to raise or are not allowed to raise domestic tuition fees, 
it's really it represents a real threat to it, particularly those smaller schools. I think. Now, I was talking about uh, uh, public colleges, and I said one or two. You said there's probably more than that. I was thinking of a couple of them in Metro Vancouver that are so reliant on there. But I I get your point. But in the private colleges, I think this would hurt significantly to the point where some of a lot of these colleges, maybe not all, but a lot of them, obviously, are going to be impacted to the point they're going to have to shut down. I mean, I think that that is probably what's going to happen, yeah, that the province is planning to distribute these international study permits primarily to public institutions, which is going to mean, yeah, absolutely devastation for the private sector. Um, the, the, there, there are really big questions, I think, in that, about because the, the private sector is quite diverse. There are different kinds of, um, you know, colleges operating in that space. And some of them, like some of them are really old, have been around for decades, and provide, I think, like a pretty important public service that public institutions aren't willing to do. And then some of them are definitely the kind of fly-by-night, um, you know, I think Minister Miller called them diploma mills. And I think like those kinds, like distinguishing that is going to be really important. But in a cut this big, it's hard to imagine even the, the you know, the more credible institutions are, are likely to be in trouble. I think you're absolutely right. Is, is this, is that a, I mean, is it a generally a good thing that some of these diploma mills do shut down that at the end of it? It, it may be unfair. Uh, in regards to how it's done and how it's implemented. But overall, this is probably good for the system, not only just for the public education system, where some would argue we've cheapened uh, a Canadian education for international students. But number two, we have too many fly-by-night diploma mills that do need to be shut down. This may be the wrong uh, the wrong way to do it, potentially. Uh, we've made it too long to address the issue. But at the end of the day, this was necessary. Yeah, I, 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 I think I, can, I really agree with the spirit of that. I don't know if I agree that the cap is the tool to do this with, but I definitely agree that the sector needed, needs reform, that there needs to be more serious consideration about what uh, college and universities do and what, what, what grants them the right to call themselves that and how, to beha- how they have to behave. Um, and, I, and I absolutely think that we need to share all those. And it's not just, I mean, it's not just, I, you make a great point about cheapening and Canadian education, but I think the other effect of it is it's really hard on international students themselves who are not in a good position to distinguish between a credible or a less credible institution when they're trying to pick one in Canada are being ne- not necessarily given totally accurate information and then arriving to find that they've been placed in a school that's not going to serve their needs, that is you know, exploiting them. So I absolutely think that there is real need for clamping down on that on that um, sector. I'm just not sure that this is the tool to do it. But, you know, I mean, I, I, it depends a lot. Again, I, you know, not to be so professorial about this, but it depends a lot on what the provincial government does with this announcement, like how they implement it. But yeah, it's a a pretty blunt tool for what is a, but it's absolutely an important change to make. A final question to you, and I think it's important for context. This didn't happen overnight. How did this all occur in your mind? Like, what was the, uh, I guess, the first false step? And when did we start that, that we walked into this need for so many international students to prop up our post-secondary education system, never mind so many coming now and, and, and you know, diploma mills and all that. When did this all start in your mind where we went the wrong way as collectively as a country? Yeah, I mean, the roots of this, and it's not unique to Canada. Like, it's important to say that this has a, been a global phenomenon, but, but Canada has embraced it in a particular way. Like, the roots of this in the 1980s with the, the huge tax regime changes that occurred in the 80s and 1990s, that changed the way we fund public um, services and, and really led to, you know, we just, we just eliminated a bunch of public services 
and we've frozen many others, and then we've had it, it's created a situation where they're competing for funds all the time. And and you know, understandably, healthcare is more important than post secondary education. And so, for since the 1980s and 90s, post secondary education has been received less, like sometimes declining or sometimes a stagnating support from the government, and has had less public support for it in general. And and governments were really clear that institutions should find a different way to fund this. And um, they allow, I mean, international student tuition, the higher tuition actually started even earlier, but it wasn't initially meant as a fundraising method. But in the 1980s and 90s, when the institution said, wait, we could use this, governments agreed, but more than agreed. Like, in, like the government of Canada has changed its policies regularly to recruit more international students. It has a, we have a national brand that the federal government pays for called EduCanada that advertises Canada around the world as a destination. Canada, every province and the federal government have strategies to recruit more international students. And they've put tremendous pressure on institutions to do this. And they've, they've made policies that will help them. So this has, been, this has been 20 or 30 years in making. And it's been a really like, concerted attempt to find a different source of funds than tax revenue. And unfortunately, like, I think if we're going to shut these things down, if this is a program we want to intervene in and reduce, and, th- and that is, a, I think, a reasonable thing to discuss, we have to find another way to fund post-secondary education because at the moment that like, this is going to be a, a real crisis, they're going to pre- this is going to be perceived as a crisis because they rely on this money. And so um, if we want to seriously talk about making educational decisions or recruiting international students because they serve our longer-term purposes or however we want to talk about this, and there's so many different ways, um, we have to recognize that we've constructed a system where post-secondary institutions are dependent on this income because we're not willing to support them in the way we did in past generations. Well, there's lots to talk about here, not just you know, the near-term impacts on businesses and public colleges and private colleges, but also, as you say, uh, our value how, and how we value our public education system. Uh, Professor yeah, McCartney, sure. thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much for having me. As I uh, came in today uh, to to work, I drive. I don't take uh, transit. I do occasionally, but uh, generally I don't. But I heard a lot about uh, folks um, who obviously uh, were part of the 300,000 impacted by buses not running today. And that, of course, when you have to get to work or to appointments, you you call a taxi or maybe you call a ride-hailing service. A lot of complaints today um, on Uber uh, and the fact that prices went up with Uber, uh, there is something called surge pricing. As demand grows, uh, they charge more. Uh, it is uh, a practice that is legal and does happen uh, throughout North America. In fact, here in British Columbia, surge pricing uh, cannot occur when there is an emergency, emergency as in, let's say, an earthquake uh, or that type of uh, uh, natural disaster. Uh, Here are some comments from folks uh, today uh, in regards to uh, having to rely on Uber and then seeing the prices this morning. I'm going to take Uber. That's going to cost too much today, like maybe three times more than... So like it's usually uh, I think uh, ten dollar, but now it's uh, thirty dollar. At least sixty dollars, but still I have to wait thirty minutes to confirm any driver. So you don't have a driver confirmed. No. 
So that is an ongoing uh, complaint we heard this morning. Joining me now is show contributor Jerry Mayer Judson. Uh, you came in on SkyTrain, so you were you were good today. I was good today. I did come by the office last night when it was unsure as to whether or not where they would be picketing and whether or not SkyTrain employees would or would not cross a picket line. So I came and got my work from home stuff just ah. in case I could not rely on the SkyTrain because I thought there is absolutely no way that I'm going to be taking an Uber into work because one, that would be an expense uh, regardless. And on today of all days, this morning, because I know a thing or two about the fact that, yeah, they do surge pricing. So I was like, I'm not going to get amongst it. What did you see online in Great Surprise? And we heard from some, some of the folks there uh, on that Global News uh, clip there. What kind of things What kind of things were you seeing online? Uh, we were, I was seeing someone posted his uh, screen cap on Twitter of his Uber receipt. And yeah. so for what would be a normal fare for him, what, what the trip normally would have been, it says on the receipt here, $39.59. But what they did do was tack on $51.47 onto that for surge pricing. And uh, so that made the whole trip 91.06, which I think is astronomical. That's 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 too much, man. Do you blame Uber? I do. Why? I do. Well, because I mean, just maybe there is unclear, like a lack of clarity on what counts as an emergency. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This seems atypical and time constrained. And what else I suppose are people supposed to do? Van- Metro Vancouver specifically is kind of a unique market and that not a lot of people drive. Not a lot of people can just, mm-hmm. well, I'll take the car to work. So I think that I do when I hear anecdotally online that Uber is not giving these extra charges or not really passing them on to the drivers. That's anecdotally. That's anecdotally. So, you know, and full disclosure here, I was on the all MLA, all party committee twice that looked at uh, ride healing and we provided sort of the the broad uh, rules in regards to how it should be, um, how the legislation should be written Mm -hmm. in regards to when ride healing move forward. And it has, and I think generally it's been a success and people will complain about certain things here and there, but generally like most cities, people use it, they rely on it, all that sort of thing. But surge pricing is there, as I said, for emergencies like earthquakes and those types of things that it can't happen. Right. We forget sometimes, and I'm not going to defend Uber here, but I think if you look at the broader issue here, they're not employees. So it's, you can get up in the morning and you can be working part-time for Uber. What's going to compel you to say, I'm going to go work today at 6 a.m. if you don't want to? So there has to be some sort of surge pricing to get you to go. That's what's worth your time to do it, number one, right? Uh, number two, I think we, and, and I think today, and I did call up Uber, they said they were, for this morning, from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m., the number of active drivers increased by more than 70% over the same hour last week. And I would argue... It's not Uber's responsibility to fill in the gap that is left by a transit system that isn't working today, right? I think if you're gonna if you're gonna say this this is an emergency, that at the very least the bus service should be an essential service. It's not. That's problem number one. At that point, at least you can compel these companies to say, okay, surge pricing is off. Uh, but if you want to go to more drivers, let's say at a rock concert at, at 9 p.m., a hockey game is getting out at Rogers Arena. And there's a football game getting out at the same time at BC Place. We need more drivers around here, right? Uh, I think that's where surge pricing compels these drivers and the algorithm to say, let's get folks there. There's going to be business there. The, these companies all work on an algorithm. I know for Uber's case, when, when I was looking, talking to their folks many years ago, uh, there's a, probably about 1,000 engineers they have on staff. They can say, Jerry's neighborhood in Burnaby at 2 p.m. on this day somehow has a surge of requests. So we're going to offer a bit more and pre-position people at that street corner 
because we somehow, the algorithm says, or research says, there's more folks there. That only works, though, if there is surge pricing allowed to a certain degree. I don't want to justify big tech for a second, but this is why it's set up that way. But if I can interject with even sure. with these thousand engineers that I'm sure that they are working and I'm sure that there it's there's more to it than this. But I know in my experience, if I'm checking the rate for a specific Uber trip or if I'm kind of specking it out, I guess, and I mm-hmm. close the app and I or not close the app, but I dismiss the app and then I open it again and then I check the route again and it sees that I am checking a bunch, it will like make the price go up and then I'll have to. Uh, soft reset my phone and yep it's true that has happened to me more than once do you, so you think there's a vast conspiracy to, not a conspiracy to, but i just don't think it's that caught con- like I, I think it's uh they they must use shortcuts like that somehow well, the, the algorithm to my understanding automatically uh, is activated by the software that detects the balance or imbalance in demand and what people are charging so if, if there's fewer riders People will say, well, I don't want that ride. Okay, well, then the, the demand will drop. But if the demand is still there and say, okay, it's gonna, you're going to get paid a little bit more, it goes up. I think the average Uber salaries, when you work it all out, is about $25 an hour. I think they okay. did that study last year. So they're not, and the, the perception is everybody's making a minimum wage or something. It's about $25 per well, hour. Like kind of a live, technically a living wage yeah, as of 2023. Is that job supposed to be a full-time job no. that's a living wage? I guess that's my question. And right? then what you're doing to your car, right, yeah, in, the, in the interim. And, and, and look, the system works well enough that people would generally rely on an Uber now than a taxi. Now, the taxi industry may not like it. They certainly fought, fought, fought to keep it out for a very long time. But it is convenient and it is working, not just here and everywhere else. I'm not justifying it. Perhaps there's things we can be doing. But Let's uh, revisit one of our big stories for the day, and that, of course, uh, is international students. Uh, Immigration Minister Mark Miller announced today that the federal government will cap the number of student permits over the next two years. The government says it will approve approximately 360,000 undergraduate study permits for 2024, a 35% reduction from 2023. Now, this has been an ongoing conversation uh, in our country. Uh, and in many other uh, Western nations, Australia and the UK specifically, we've got over a million uh, uh, international students in this country. Uh, now, keep in mind, we have um, immigration numbers, right? This year, we'll have about 485,000 people immigrating to this country. Next year, it'll be 500,000. The million number I just mentioned is on top of our official immigration numbers. Those are just not just students, but also temporary foreign workers. Now, as I said... Other Western nations have also had to deal with this issue. Recently, the UK uh, and Australia put uh, the brakes on their immigration numbers, seeing the same thing. In fact, they're going to do a complete redo in Australia when it comes to the type of immigrant they want coming to their country. Here's Australian Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill speaking on the issue of migration to Australia. And I got to tell you, this is one of the most clearly focused comments I've heard from an elected official in a very, very long time. She addresses the issue in a clear, concise manner and also uh, provides some sort of solution to it as well. Take a listen. Our migration system is really constructed back the front at the moment. And what I mean by that is it is very hard today to come to Australia as a really highly skilled permanent migrant. And these are just the migrants we need, but we place endless bureaucracy and wait times and cost in their path. 
what we have also done at that at that same time, what really is you know happened under the previous government, is these side doors and back doors have been left open. So very large numbers of people are coming into our country. They are settling into low skill jobs in the labour market, and they are highly vulnerable to exploitation. Now, what we are trying to do is flip that. We are trying to make sure that we create easier pathways for those um, migrants who are going to come here, build the productivity of our country, grow jobs, um, build businesses and lift the productivity of those around them, while at the same time we address what are really problematic integrity issues at the moment in the system. And the biggest pathway that that's occurring at, um, at the moment in is through our international student system. Man, I would love to have heard that press conference today uh, in Canada. Instead, we have ministers saying they're going to try to address the issue, but never acknowledging, hey, we've been running the show since 2015. And that's part of the problem. Uh, so I thought this hour, it'd be important that we ask, not just, we're not here to bash international uh, students or immigrants. Uh, this is a show run by an immigrant, <laughs> very blunt. Uh, but I do believe the system has gone, it's just gone wrong. There's something fundamentally flawed uh, when we have that many Canadians Canadians coming here, and as the minister acknowledges, uh, enrolling and paying significant dollars for essentially diploma mills. So the question really is, what kind of immigrant does Canada need? What kind of international student does Canada need? Well, joining me now to talk about this issue is Chris Gardner. He's president of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Chris, welcome. Well, uh, great to be on your show, Jazz. So uh, tell me first and foremost, your response to uh, what the minister uh, said or acknowledged today. I'm not sure how to phrase that, but what do you think about the, what do you think about the minister's comments? Well, listen, she was very clear and, and you could have made her a minister in Ottawa and, and she could have said exactly the same thing. Uh, if you think about what happened in Canada last year, our population increased by 1.2 million people. We haven't seen that level of increase in Canada since 1949 when Newfoundland joined Confederation. Um, so it's a staggering number. And um, we basically added a city the size of Calgary to Canada last year. That's the pace we're on. So think about if we add, you know, again this year, a, a city the size of Calgary and the year after and the next year after that. Um, we, our economy right now isn't structured in a way where we can absorb all of that in a way that makes sense. And as the minister outlined, what we want are immigrants to come to Canada and be able to increase our productivity and be entrepreneurs and invest in businesses, mm -hmm. create opportunity. Uh, that's not how the system is functioning right now. Um, your sector, uh, which is um, the, the construction sector, um, the development sector, you build stuff. Your, your, your members build stuff, whether it be bridges, whether it be buildings. Uh, you're building physical infrastructure. Um, if you were allowed to advise on what our immigration system should look like in regards to bringing the right people, what is the right type of immigrant in your mind? Well, let's take a look at, at construction. It's about 10% of our economy. And last year, we, we brought in about 460,000 permanent immigrants. These are not the temporary workers, not the international students. 460,000 temporary or permanent residents. Only 2% hmm. of those individuals who are coming here permanently to live go into a construction trade. And so why isn't the system geared towards looking at the skills gap in our economy, whether they're trades workers, doctors, nurses, and then going out and recruiting those people in the numbers we need to fill those skills gaps. We don't do that. Um, we, should be, we should be recruiting a higher number of doctors and nurses, uh, qualified other skilled professions, and construction trades workers. Why only 2%? So 9,000 
construction workers of the 460,000 immigrated to Canada last year. The number's too low. So our system is failing us. And uh, Why aren't we doing that? In your mind, I mean, it, 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 this shouldn't be too difficult to say we need an X amount of carpenters, plumbers, pipe fitters, yep. engineers. Uh, that shouldn't be too difficult. And you would think Brand Canada can still sell itself. Why? Why is what? What's falling apart here that we can't get that message to Ottawa, or Ottawa's not asking, or just not getting these people here? Well, I think there's a you know we, we've talked about this a lot, Jazz. Where, where high school students there's a bias against presenting. The construction mm-hmm. trades as a career opportunity, as an entrepreneurial opportunity, as a technology story. I think it's the same with our immigration system. I think we're biased towards four-year degrees. Mm-hmm. And I think if someone applies to immigrate to Canada, they got a four-year degree, they're, 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 they're favored over those who may be on the way to getting a construction trade interested in construction. And uh, because, because only a, a systemic flaw would explain why 2%. Mm-hmm. of all permanent immigrants in this country are in the trades and not a higher number. Something should be closer to 8 to 10%. Uh, in your mind, what is the right number? Is, is uh, you know, cutting it back by 35% when it comes to international students, yeah. but keeping the immigration number to 485 this year, 500,000 next year? I mean, what do you think is the the right number to deal with an aging workforce that yeah. we do need to replace folks. So I was reading a study recently in the United States, 50% of all baby boomers now are retired in the United States. I don't think we're that far off or maybe be the same here in Canada. So we do need people to pay for uh, education. At the same time, the numbers that we have now, Keith Baldry was saying, I think it was 300,000 people we've added to MSP the last two years, another 200,000 people expected to move to BC uh, this year, uh, which is about the size of Richmond, 200,000 people. Um, so I- I- my question is, what do you think is the right number for this, our country in regards to immigration? Well, it's a good question because we never really had that discussion. On, on international students, the number you mentioned, we've got about a million international students. And the Globe Mail reported last week that 20% of them don't even show up to class, never go to one class. And what do we do about 20%. it? 20%. 20%. We don't do anything about it. There are some private colleges in Ontario, the Globe Mail reported, where 90% of the students who are issued international student visas never show up to a single class. The system is broken. So the kid, th- these students are still paying for that class. They pay for the class. They get the visa. They come to Canada. They and work. what are they doing? They're going to work. They're doing other things. But we don't know. Because no one's calling them, no one's pulling that visa and saying, you didn't show up to class, see you later, alligator. And the private college is still getting paid. That's right. And with no students there. So That's right. Wow. And then on, on the university side, and you know, first-year commerce at UBC, $5,800 for a Canadian, 58000 for an international student. So over the course of four years, an undergraduate degree, that's a quarter of a million dollars, just in tuition. So it's become, the system has become skewed and incentivized uh, incentivized by cash. In terms of the number, the last week you had the National Bank of Canada come out, and it's the first time I've seen, and there's been a lot written on immigration and, and how much is, is too much or not enough, and they're the first institution to put down a number that says they do not think that we should be taking in more than 500,000 immigrants annually. That's a significant you know, ratcheting back of where we are now. Does that include temporary foreign workers, everything? Is that what they're saying? Or is it just the immigration numbers? It's just the immigration numbers. Okay. So, so instead of our population expanding by 1.2 million, she'd be expanding by somewhere in the three to 500,000 mm. uh, annually. But if you think about where we are demographically, in British Columbia last year again, more people died in British Columbia than were born. Same thing happened in 2022. So for two years in a row, 
natural deaths exceeded natural births in British Columbia. So we are going over a demographic cliff. We need people. And, we, and it is good to have uh, you know, a portion of international students on any campus. But the problem is the system's broken. Ottawa has let it get out of control. And it's not working for Canadians. And it's not working for business. It's not working for our communities. There's too much stress and pressure, whether it's housing, education system, health care, transit. And finally... The government's now starting to move, but listen, it's a little bit, you know, the, the, the barn door is open and all the, all the horses have left, uh, and this is not going to be easy to get a handle on because Ottawa's mismanaged this file so, so badly. You're yeah. absolutely right. Chris, thank you for your time. Great, thank you. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the 2024 presidential race and has endorsed Donald Trump. He quit ahead of the Republican primary election in New Hampshire, where he was polling in the single digits. So Mr. Trump, Donald Trump, is still left, and so is Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina. So what's this all mean? Joining me now is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this weekend. What does Mr. DeSantis's uh, departure mean for the race? Well, it means that uh, the support that was piling up beneath him is likely going to go to Donald Trump. And that's because in this kind of direct-to-video announcement that Ron DeSantis made, uh, he gave his endorsement to Donald Trump within seconds uh, of leaving the race. And it kind of sends that signal to those that were supporting him to fall in line under Donald Trump. Some may choose to go towards Nikki Haley, but secondly, what does this do to Nikki Haley? It potentially makes it more difficult for her to close that gap with Donald Trump because he may now get more support that he wouldn't have had uh, had Ron DeSantis stayed in. What, uh, in your assessment, as you follow this very closely, uh, how would you describe the last year for Mr. DeSantis in regards to uh, his campaign, it almost seemed like he just couldn't get it into the next gear in regards to support and reaching out to people. He didn't seem to connect for that core Republican voter. Yeah, and well, look, he did at first. Uh, he came out incredibly strong, and polls throughout 2023 actually had him at a significant advantage uh, when uh, Iowa was looked at and when New Hampshire was looked at. But most political experts were saying, look, Ron DeSantis is peaking too early, and then Following that, we saw fighting within the DeSantis campaign. We saw departures from within the uh, DeSantis campaign. And then in the lead up to Iowa, when it looked like the numbers were potentially getting better for Nikki Haley, we saw a messaging shift from Ron DeSantis, where all of a sudden, instead of lining up with and pretending to not be critical of Donald Trump, the clause came out and he did what he could to attack Trump without disenfranchising himself from the base. It, it, it didn't work for him because it turned some Trump voters off uh, or at least some voters off of him and back towards uh, Donald Trump. So there was messaging issues. There was uh, there was fighting issues in his campaign. He was losing donors. So this was a money issue as well. He peaked early. He flamed out incredibly hard. Uh, and that's, you know, that that's evident now in the fact that he dropped out before the second contest. Mm. Uh, could Donald Trump, because of uh, his strong showing in Iowa and still uh, strong showing uh, in New Hampshire, could uh, Donald Trump have all this sewn up by Super Tuesday? 
It's very possible. Uh, I mean, look, Donald Trump, uh, if he comes out on Tuesday with uh, with an incredibly large lead over Nikki Haley, um, you know, it, it leaves her in a position of either having to bow out before the next race, which is South Carolina at the end of February, which is her home state. And if she bows out before then, this essentially is Donald Trump's race to lose. If she stays in the race, tries to build on some momentum, especially if she has finds herself in a position on Tuesday um, with closer margins to Trump, this could make it more difficult for Trump to get through South Carolina with, you know, the big numbers that he's hoping for. But realistically, I mean, you know, Donald Trump would have to have something significant happen to to the support that's in his um, foundation to, to, to lose this, because even if Nikki Haley does well here, Jazz, on Tuesday, the polls get more difficult for her, the states get more conservative, and it becomes more difficult for her to win anything beyond New Hampshire. So, so this really is Trump's race. Uh, many people have uh, talked about this particular race as Trumpism versus traditional Republicanism. Uh, Ms. Haley, in some of her speeches, has talked about wherever Donald Trump goes, there's just chaos. Uh, and she often uh, points to probably a year-old poll showing that, you know, she would have a much better chance in a general election against Joe Biden than Donald Trump would. Uh, why do you think there's this underlying strong support for Mr. Trump from the base, uh, yet polls have shown that um, he's still going to have a tough time in the general election uh, with Joe Biden? Well, I mean, it comes down to what we saw in 2020. Uh, I mean, look, Donald Trump ran uh, a successful campaign. He ran uh, with having strong support from within the most conservative and the kind of moderately conservative factions within the base, but he still came up short uh, in the general election. And sure, polls are showing right now that maybe Biden is weaker as a candidate, but Donald Trump can find himself in some polls, you know, being the same candidate who may be just as weak. Realistically here, you know, there is a big conservative part of, of the United States that goes along with what Donald Trump says, and he may be the person who's able to beat out those that are running on a more moderate platform on someone like Nikki Haley. But by the time it gets to the general election, especially if there are more legal issues for Donald Trump or he finds himself caught up into more controversies, it could turn off a central part of the Republican voting base uh, who decides, look, we don't want to go through this again. And if Trump is the only Republican candidate, some of those Republicans may simply sit out and not vote. So more Trumpy Trump and his campaign get, uh, and the more Trumpy some parts of the right wing of the Republican Party get, it turns off other voters. Uh, and, and so you know, what happens later on this year could eventually benefit Joe Biden. Reggie, as always, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Well, Pasha Baines has, an, has had an illustrious uh, basketball career. He's played Division One basketball in the United States at Clemson. He's played for SFU. He's played for uh, Canada's national team. And in 2004, he founded Drive Basketball, which is a basketball camp in his birth town of Richmond. Of course, uh, that camp is now available throughout uh, the lower mainland. He's also now one of the main individuals behind British Columbia's first prep school basketball academy, which is coming to Vancouver in uh, the fall of 2020. 24. Pasha Baines is the founder of Drive Basketball and Atlas Primero Academia. Pasha, thank you for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me on. So uh, the reasoning behind this basketball prep academy, why did you think Vancouver needs this type of academy now? Well, you know, I'm calling it the next evolution of basketball here in BC. Um, you know, we've had the clubs uh, come about uh, and grown. Uh, we've had 
drives had over 20 kids go division one but we don't we, we don't have a prep school here and we've you know this year alone we've seen not i mean we've seen in the past a lot of kids who have graduated high school they're called postgrads that have left for prep school but this is the first year where there was over i want to say over eight of the top the very top players in bc that left for prep school while still in high school so you know i've held off as long as i could because i do love the high school game uh, I, I think that this prep school will be focused early on more on postgrad kids, mm-hmm. the kids who have graduated high school that need an extra year. Um, you know, going Division One now is a lot harder than it used to be, so mm-hmm. I think it'll be more on that. But eventually, we'd like to move into you know the full out high school and postgrad prep school as it is in Toronto and other areas in the U.S. So you say you know there's these basketball prep academies in the U.S. Uh, it's very common in Ontario. So for, for our listeners. Uh, as you say, this is going to be for those folks uh, who may need another year or so, but your goal, of course, is to open the school and eventually it's going to be for kids uh, in, 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 in sort of the junior high, high school range. But walk me through what would a day would look like uh, once you have something like that open. Um, are you referring to the postgrad kids or are you referring to the kids that would be in high school? In high school. Well, when, you get to, when we get to the high school level, like I said, uh, Ontario is full of like their high school basketball is very uh, minimized there now. It's just all prep schools. So um, as far as yeah, a day that goes here, it would be very similar to you know the hockey academies that are happening right now in Delta. You know there'll be training in the morning. The kids will do school. Um, you know there'll be individual training, strength training, a lot more focus based uh, things like you know that, that we can't do in high school, whether it be mental training, goal setting, things like that. Mm-hmm. They would all practice in the afternoon, and then um, you know some kids would be coming up from out of town. Um, the kids that are Local, obviously, would go home, and it would just be a full day of training and academics, uh, something that you just literally can't do in regular high school basketball. What would the cost be for something like that? You know, it's, it's, it's going to be very similar to, it depends in terms of the teams. So we'll have a national team that travels and flies around the country, then we'll have a, a more of a local, local-based team that will do more, uh, you know, events that they don't have to fly to. Um, it, it's all going to vary per team. I would say right now, on average, prep schools, uh, you know, from the parents I've spoken to and the kids that drive that have gone uh, to prep schools in the past, it's about fifteen to eighteen grand if you are not lodging, mm-hmm. and it's about thirty grand uh, if you're lodging with food and. Uh, uh, um, housing. Housing, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, what do you say to those who argue, look, we have a pretty robust basketball culture and home here from our high school system. What do you think these this prep school would provide that our present high school basketball system doesn't in your mind? Well, like I said, focus training and having the elite kids play together. Um, I, I should mention this is not just for the elite kids. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to be for all kids uh, that want to develop more and play Train, train at a higher level, uh, pursue their goals. You know, uh, high school basketball, like, I mean, was great to me. I love it. It has a great, um, you know, place in my heart, but it's not the same as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you, if you ask anybody around, um, you know, it's just, it's, it doesn't hold the same cachet anymore. And like I said, when we start having some of the top players in BC leave while they're still in high school, that that shows me that there's a need here, right? And, um, you know, I, I do believe that kids should not have to leave their home uh, until they're ready for college. You know, I don't think that you should have to leave your home for prep school. So that's another big, one of the big reasons that I decided to take this challenge on. Yeah, I, I was thinking, you know, you grew up in Richmond, as I was mentioning, and you have the Richmond Colt basketball team, part of that very proud high school culture. Talk to me a little bit about the sport itself of basketball from when you grew up 
to today. What's different about it in regards to the broad basketball culture here? Walk me through the community here in regards to where we are in 2024. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're crazed over here in, in BC, in the lower mainland, you know, where the clubs have grown you know, exponentially. Um, kids are playing at an earlier age. It's more organized. You know, kids are traveling and playing down south. I should mention that last year, Drive was able to secure a Nike contract to play in the Nike EYBL, which is the highest level of AAU hoops. Mm-hmm. So this uh, basketball here is growing at every single area, um, and I, that's why I think this prep school fits in nicely with everything else that's happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an aside, uh, most expect uh, the NBA to announce their expansion teams. Most people expect it to be Las Vegas and Seattle. Uh, do you ever see a Vancouver Grizzlies or, or a professional basketball team here uh, again in Vancouver. I was at a Vancouver Bandits game. Really enjoyed it uh, last year out at the Langley Event Center. Um, and uh, great sort of atmosphere, uh, energy. You can see the love of the game as well. Do you ever see Vancouver getting get, get, being given another chance to, to, to one day be home to an NBA team? I mean, I, I don't think we should get our hopes up. Uh, it's a great dream to have. I, but I do think that our culture here is thriving enough without it. Uh, you know, like, like I said, we are a basketball city, and, uh, you know, kids are crazed about it. Uh, they're playing four or five times a week, uh, you know, where we have kids that are developing at, at great rates. And, 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 that, and like I said, that's one of the reasons why a prep school here is needed, because they need something that's just another carrot for them to look forward to. Like, hey, if I get to the prep school, then I can get to, you know, it's not even about Division One. It's it, Nowadays, it's hard to play U Sport, which is UBC, um, you know, UVic, schools like that, and even hard to play college, you know, like, Douglas College, Langara. I had a really good kid, uh, a senior high school kid, who I thought I would have no problem going to a college. And the Douglas College coach said he's too full. You know, so when there's an, when when that's happening, it's just too bad. That kid should be able to keep playing basketball, right? So mm-hmm. that one extra year, we're not just going to be feeding kids to Division One. Obviously, that's what we we our aim is for. But we're hoping to be feeding kids to U Sport uh, colleges and maybe even just giving kids an extra chance to play one more year of basketball. I had a parent who applied to uh, the Atletas Academy say to me, I just don't want my kid to be finished yet. I think he still has the basketball left in him. So this is not just for the elite players. I think that this academy, this club, will service a lot of the different players here in BC. Final question. You still have a lot of passion for it. I I know you've got a business to run with Drive, and now you're doing this. Uh, But that same kid who picked up the ball for the first time and had a great career in, in high school and college, and still does basketball. Is the passion still there every morning? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'm obsessed with it. If, you, uh, if anybody follows me on Twitter, I love talking to game. Uh, you know, I watch games all night, every night. Uh, you know, it's, it's just uh, it's something that doesn't, doesn't leave you. If anything, more, I'm probably more passionate about it than ever now. Pasha, thank you so much for your time, and best of luck to you. Thanks a lot. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. 
Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.